Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah, um, chapter 9. You know, this uh, Advent season, as we've gone through these last four weeks, we've been in the book of Isaiah, and we've been looking at the different portraits that Isaiah paints of Jesus Christ, and the fact that he's writing these portraits of Jesus, that picture for us who he is and what he did in his ministry and his life 700 years before Jesus was actually born. And so each one of these passages is, is a prophecy that Jesus Christ has fulfilled as he came for his first coming. We started with Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where it says that, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. And in that portrait, we see the birth of Jesus. The fact that he came as Emmanuel, that is, God with us, that being fully God, he took on full humanity. And what we call the incarnation. The incarnation is that the eternal Son of God, in a moment in time, took on humanity and was born a baby. And we see that picture in Matthew as that babe is in the humble um, manger, a feeding trough. Then we went to the cross as we went to Isaiah chapter 53 where he says this about Jesus. He says that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Last week, we kind of hid in between, and Isaiah gave us a picture of Jesus' earthly ministry and the heart that he had as he was doing his ministry during those three years. Jesus would use these words to describe himself at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so the thing that these three portraits of Jesus have in common is, as I mentioned, they all point to his first coming. They talk about his birth, they talk about his ministry, they talk about his crucifixion, and then they talk about his resurrection. Well, as we come to chapter 9, Isaiah is going to look beyond the first coming of Jesus, and he's going to look at his second coming. From our perspective, what he's talking about here is when Jesus returns. And as he returns, he's going to be coming back, not in the humility of a babe in a manger in a feeding trough, he's going to be coming back with the glory of a king. And he's going to be coming back with the power to establish a kingdom that he will then reign over for eternity. And it's a good place for us to conclude this Advent study, and it's actually a good place to be here on Christmas Eve because the focus of Advent is on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because the whole point of Advent is our hope. It's our hope. And it's the fact that 
Jesus Christ in his first coming fulfilled every promise and every prophecy that the Bible has given us, including the ones we've seen here in Isaiah, they all came true. Jesus Christ fulfilled them all. And so we have confidence that as we go back into the Scripture and we see the promises and the prophecies related to Jesus Christ's return, we can have the confidence that they're going to be fulfilled as well. And that includes these verses we're going to look at this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. So as we look at verses 1 and 2, Isaiah sets the context for us of this prophecy concerning the second coming. He says in verses 1 and 2 that nevertheless there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The historical background of Isaiah chapter 9 begins with remembering that about 200 years before Isaiah writes, the kingdom of Israel had a civil war. And as a result of that, Israel was divided into two separate kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That northern kingdom kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom became known as Judah. That northern kingdom of Israel had a series of totally ungodly kings who led the nation of Israel deeper and deeper into idolatry and deeper and deeper into perversion and sin. In Judea, they had a mixture. They had some godly kings, some ungodly kings, and so they had a spiritual yo-yo experience. If there was a godly king, they drew closer to God. If it was an ungodly king, they drifted away from God, and up and down they had been going for 200 years. Right before Isaiah writes chapter 9, that northern kingdom of Israel was defeated and devastated by a group of people called the Assyrians. They happened to be the most powerful empire of that time. They came through and they absolutely burned to the ground every town and city of Israel. Millions of people were killed. Most of the remaining Jews that survived were deported out of that area into other and dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire to never return. They left a few Jews there, the, the ones that were the poorest of the poor, And then they brought in foreigners from other Gentile nations that they had conquered in and forced them to intermarry with the Jews, creating this mixed group that became known as the Samaritans. You'll find out a few things about them in the Gospels during the ministry of Jesus, and that's where the Samaritans came from. The area around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus would spend most of his life was especially hard hit by the Assyrians. They, they decimated it to the point that it would be a hundred years before any of those towns would be resettled. And Isaiah has been warning the people in Judah that the same fate's going to happen to them if they do not fully repent and consistently walk with God. They don't heed that. And so 150 years from the writing of chapter 9, the southern kingdom of Judah will suffer the same fate as their northern brothers and sisters but by the hand of the Babylonians. And all that's important because Isaiah's painting a picture here of what reality looks like to these Jews, these Israelites, as they're receiving this word. 
To them, God's abandoned them. To them, He has removed His presence. He has removed His blessing. And He has removed His promises. They're abandoned. It comes down in four words in these first two um, verses here. If you're looking at where they're at, what their perspective is, as they're looking at the situations they are in, their first one is gloom. That word means to be placed in bondage and under the control of others. And to look into the future and have no hope. A gloomy outlook. They're in distress. That's the emotional part of this. That's their response. And it has the idea of deep fear and anxiety. They have that sense that they're not in control of what's going on and they're not in control of what their future looks like. In verse 2, it talks about them walking or living in darkness. And that's the idea of pitch black where you feel totally alone. You feel totally alone. And then deep darkness literally is the shadow of death. Shadow of the grave. That's that sense of total hopelessness. Because as I mentioned to them, God has removed his blessing. And they feel the future has no hope. They're asking questions like, where's God in all this? Why are these things happening? Has God abandoned us? You may look at the state of the world and all the things that are going on, especially in this last year, year and a half, and you may have some of those same questions about the world. And maybe some of you have been going through some deep waters in your own personal life. And you're asking some of those same questions. Where's God in all this? Why are these things happening? Has God abandoned me? That's where these people are. But in the midst of this, in these two verses here as we get into the passage, Isaiah gives them a glimmer of hope. He gives them a glimmer of hope. And he says, God will not leave you here. That's what it looks like now, but God will not leave you here. The end of verse 1, it says, But in the future, he that is God will honor Galilee of the nations. That phrase, will honor Galilee, means he will restore them. He will restore them. This area that has been so devastated by the Assyrians and it looks desolate and abandoned, the day will come, he says, that God is going to restore you right here. He's going to remove the gloom. He's going to remove the distress. And he's going to remove the darkness. And he will replace it with joy and hope. And it's not just for the Jews, because it's Galilee of the nations. This blessing is going to be for Gentiles as well. And so as we look at the nation of Israel, and as we look at the world in general, Isaiah is saying, there is hope. God will not leave you where you are. He will not leave you where you are. 
That blessing that Isaiah is talking about has a name. And his name is Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus Christ. As Isaiah looks, not at the first coming of Jesus, but at the second coming of what we call the return of Jesus, first of all, he points out Jesus will fully restore the nation of Israel. He's going to fully restore the nation of Israel. He's going to establish a worldwide kingdom, but he specifically will also restore the nation of Israel, fulfilling all the promises that God has made to this nation. In verse 2 again, where it talks about the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, the light has dawned. Isaiah gives us this little, this little bit of information. The Messiah that we know as Jesus Christ will come out of Galilee. He's going to come from this very area that has been so decimated by the Assyrians. And you and I know that Jesus Christ indeed spends the majority of his life in Galilee and he will do the, and, and will have most of his ministry in Galilee. And so these people that are living in loneliness and hopelessness are going to experience the joy and the hope of God once again through Jesus Christ when he returns. When Jesus Christ returns and establishes his worldwide kingdom, he also does fully restore the nation of Israel. In verse 3 of chapter 9, he says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Enlarge the nation means that this small remnant of Jews that were left in the land will one day become a fully and complete nation again. Even in Israel today, that's a remnant of Jews, of the worldwide population of Jews. The day is going to come when the majority of the Jews will be reestablished in that land of Israel. And he says when this happens, the nation of Israel will rejoice. They will rejoice. They're going to rejoice like a farmer with a bountiful harvest and his barns full. And they're going to rejoice like soldiers on a battlefield who have just won a victory. And when we see the world in all the conflicts, when our hearts break as we see what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in Ukraine, it's not as well known But there is a major civil war once again in the country of Sudan, and they've suffered so much over the last 30 years. It's an area of the world that our daughter Sarah has ministered to medically a few times. When we see all of that taking place, remember this. When Jesus Christ returns, that's when there will be peace. When Jesus Christ returns, there will be a joy this world has never known because there will be no more wars, because Jesus Christ will reign on his throne. In fact, the last thing that Isaiah says here in this section is that when Jesus is reigning over his kingdom, in fact, there will be no more war. There will be no more war. Verse 5, it says that every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. His point is this. All implements of war are going to be done away with because they will no longer be needed. Why? Because when Jesus Christ reigns, there is no war. There's peace. He will not only come and reestablish 
the kingdom of Israel, but as he's reigning, there will be no more war. And when he returns, Jesus Christ will be seen in the fullness of his glory and majesty. It says in verse 6, well-known verse, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is going to rule as Emmanuel. He will rule as God with us. That a child is born points to the fact that Jesus is human. He is full humanity. When it says a son is given, that points to his deity. It is reflected in the well-known verse that the Apostle John wrote in chapter 3 and verse 16 of his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus will rule as Emmanuel, God with us. And he will carry the full responsibility of governing. It says that the government will be on his shoulders. That is the idea of he will take full responsibility for all the governing that needs to take place globally in his kingdom. The same Jesus who came humbly 2,000 years ago in the little town of Bethlehem is the same Jesus who's going to return in power and glory to establish his kingdom. And Jesus is wonderful counselor. He is extraordinary in his wisdom, discernment, and guidance. The word wonderful, in fact, means extraordinary and miraculous, beyond anything that's human. And counselor is a person who fully listens. He fully understands. He or she has wisdom and discernment so that they provide just the right guidance. And in the case of Jesus coming in over his kingdom, when someone has that position of authority, it's the kind of wisdom that leads to perfect and right decisions. Jesus Christ will rule as the wonderful counselor extraordinary in his wisdom, guidance, and decisions. Over and over again, Israel had been betrayed by its leaders. And over over again in human history, we've all been betrayed at times by our leaders. All of us have been misled by dishonest rulers. All of us have had the experience of being led astray by foolish rulers taken advantage of by abusive rulers, let down by weak rulers. But when Jesus Christ rules, he will be wonderful counselor, extraordinary in his wisdom, decisions, and leadership. He is mighty God, the eternal, sovereign, and all-powerful God. The word mighty in some places in the Old Testament is translated warrior, And it's the idea of someone who's so strong that they possess such great strength that they will prevail over any and all adversaries. They have extreme power beyond anything or anybody else. And he is the eternal, sovereign creator, God. 
The little baby in the manger in Luke chapter 2 is the same God of Genesis chapter 1 that created everything that is. And when Jesus reigns, there is no one and there is nothing that can prevent him from accomplishing his will. What Jesus as the wonderful counselor determines to do, Jesus as mighty God will fulfill. Jesus is everlasting Father, that he, and that means He rules with loving care. This is not to be confused that He becomes God the Father, the first person of the Godhead. This is more the idea of how Jesus will rule. This is Jesus will rule like a Father, like a loving Father. He will have the heart of a Father that's loving and protective, that is affectionate, compassionate, and caring. He may be mighty God, but Jesus will not rule harshly. And he will not rule dictatorially. That's why Jesus was able to say, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And Jesus is Prince of Peace. His rule will bring peace on this planet. Prince is the fact that he is a title of authority, and that means he's got the authority to establish this peace. Governments send representatives all over the globe to negotiate peace, and they, do, they, they give it their best efforts. Jesus Christ won't have to negotiate. He's got the, he will have the authority to establish it. And he will establish peace. The word peace here is that wonderful Hebrew word shalom. It's a lot more than just the absence of conflict. This is a peace in which you feel safe. You feel complete where you feel fulfilled, satisfied, and where you are in harmony with God and in harmony with other people. At his first coming, Jesus made peace between God and people possible through the cross and resurrection. But at his second coming, Jesus Christ is going to establish a kingdom that brings peace to every living person on the planet. He is going to bring peace to every relationship He's going to bring peace between every nation, and it will be perfect peace. Every conflict replaced by harmony. And Jesus will reign forever. This kingdom will last forever through the millennial kingdom, right on into eternity beyond. Verse 7, it says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. His reign has no limits. The idea of be no end means it will take up all the space. In other words, there is no place on this planet and no life that being lived during his kingdom that will not experience his rule and his peace. 
And it also is not limited by time because His rule is forever. And His reign will be established with justice and righteousness. Justice is that every decision is true, right, and fair. And righteousness is the fact that every decision is made based upon the godly principles and truth of the Lord Himself. Jesus Christ will not establish His kingdom to tweak the planet, to make adjustments, or to try to set a new course. Jesus Christ is going to come and He will implement a massive and complete correction of every systemic evil that plagues this planet. And it'll be be rectified forever. You know, this is the Jesus that we know today because it's important to understand Jesus doesn't become these things when he returns. Jesus is all of this now. If you are a believer, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, this is who Jesus is in your life now. Now, because of sin, you and I know this, even if we are a believer in Jesus, we do not fully experience him now. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. While we're here, there's suffering, and what he's talking about is all the effects of sin and all of its manifestations, both within us and around us. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. We can only partially understand all that is is about Jesus and all our relationship with Jesus is going to be. And we understand it a bit, but boy, when we are in his presence, and especially once he has returned and established his kingdom and all of this is taking place on the planet, we will know him fully in all of his glory. And the Apostle John in 1 John 3 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The wonderful thing is, even though our experience of Jesus in this life is incomplete and sometimes sin clouds it, we are still children of God. That is held secure by our faith in Jesus Christ. And one day we will understand fully all that it means to be in that relationship with him. But in every situation that you and I are facing, every circumstance we may be in, Jesus Christ is wonderful counselor. And so we need to be seeking him in his wisdom, his counsel, and his guidance as we go through this life. Jesus Christ is mighty God. He is the one that can give us the enabling grace and strength to go through anything and everything that this life throws at us. Jesus Christ is everlasting Father, and so we can learn to rest in Him, rest in His love, rest in His peace, rest in His provision. And Jesus Christ is Prince of Peace. And He told us through the, His ministry, as He spoke to the disciples, if you ask for it, I can give you my peace, and I can give you my joy that your joy may be full, not in the kingdom now 
Because Jesus Christ today is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting father. He is prince of peace. And as we go to him, he brings the grace of all of these different elements of who he is into our lives. And the return of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom is our blessed hope. That's our hope. As you and I live in a broken world, we need to remember that our hope will never be fulfilled in any human being elected to any office. Our hope will never be some situation if only this would happen. Our hope is in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished at the cross and through his resurrection and the hope of his return and the establishment of the kingdom that Isaiah has been painting for us here. That's our hope. He is our hope. The author Alec Moyer, in his commentary on Isaiah, as he was looking at these verses, wrote this. He said, as always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they're going to live by. Are they going to look at darkness, hopelessness, and dreams shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they going to recall his past mercies, remember his present promises, and then make a great affirmation of faith? The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth. And it is certainly not the fundamental truth. And that's true. The fundamental truth is that Jesus Christ, who came 2,000 years ago to be our Savior, is one day going to return and establish His perfect kingdom. And when you bring these two truths together, you have the full meaning of Christmas. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He is the God who has come. And he is the God who through his church and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is with us. He is the one who has come, in the words of the Apostle John, as the word who became flesh and made his dwelling with us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's the Jesus we know. That's the Jesus who has come. That's the Jesus who is our Savior. But Christmas also says, look ahead. Because Emmanuel has come, but Emmanuel will return. And when he returns, he will return in the fullness of his glory to establish his kingdom. You bring those two together, that's Christmas. That's Christmas. Merry Christmas. And may you know the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. May you have that relationship with him where he is your Savior. And if there is any question in your mind whether that relationship is in your life, whether you've accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, I would love to talk to you today about that. And please come up and see me after the service. And if you have, may you know the joy, the peace, and the hope of Jesus Christ in this wonderful season. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pause, and we do thank you for Jesus Christ and all that he is. 
We thank you that he is the Savior who has come. We thank you that he is the King who is going to return. Father, in this world and all the different things that we go through because of sin, may each one here know and experience Jesus Christ in the fullness of who he is, his wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And it's in his name that we pray. And together the family of God says, Amen.